Hi, welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred, the uh, independent New Zealand and international politics podcast. Uh, I am your co-host Branko Marjatic, uh, and I am once again joined by just one of my compatriots here, uh, Philip Lansted. Uh Philip, how are you going? Kia ora, going good. Uh, my voice sounds normal. Sorry, sorry, listeners, not exciting from me. But if you think that Branko sounds a bit more sonorous. Um, perhaps a little like late night uh, radio host, then you're in for a lucky, lucky listen. Post viral Bronco's voice. Yeah, uh, post viral. I'm in the I'm on the tail end of virality, I guess. Uh, yeah, I got sick earlier this week. I thought maybe it was COVID because it completely, uh, completely uh, destroyed me um, just in terms of energy. But turns out you can get uh, you can feel a crap uh, under a bunch of other um viruses going around uh not yeah, just COVID. that's something so. that's something that probably most of new zealand has, has learned in the last couple of months i'd say <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it yeah unfortunately what it does mean is that every time i laugh i end up um breaking into a coughing fit or sounding like i'm like i've been smoking four packs a day for the last four months so i'm gonna i'm gonna try and not find anything you say funny for the rest of this episode uh, for the that's sake of easy it's a pretty it's a barrel of laughs around the world right now so i'm sure you'll manage yeah well yeah we've got quite a quite a fun little uh schedule uh besides the the war in ukraine the death of uh of mikhail gorbachev uh uh well you know i guess the the, the first thing that we were going to cover was not that depressing it's uh it's but it is a big story um in new zealand this week in new zealand politics and it's um it's a, it's an interesting one i guess uh we we're, we're talking about the uh, the big flip-flop uh that uh that came from the labor government over uh the tax on kiwi saver um fund fees uh which uh i'm going to try and explain to people for both people in new zealand who maybe don't know what uh any of this is about and and uh for people overseas who may be listening who have no idea what kiwi saver is uh kiwi saver was basically a it's a, it's a retirement scheme that was introduced by uh the previous labor government um that uh basically people put in uh parts of their paycheck and their employer matches it um the government is also uh, meant to match it as well uh all of this this, this money is pulled and then it is uh, invested um and and hopefully you know over time grows uh depending and people can ch- pick what kind of investment strategy they want but ultimately you know there's a there's a fund manager that's doing the stuff for them because most people they want to get on with their lives, not not sit there having to make investment decisions. Uh, big, the big news about KiwiSaver this week is that the Labor government um, put forward this plan quietly, uh, basically to level the playing field among all fund managers. I believe at the moment, it's kind of a smaller uh, fund managers, right, that, that are paying uh, GST, goods and services tax, on uh, 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 on on the fees, and then the larger ones aren't, and so Labor wanted to even the playing field. But what what the result of that was is that the the Kiwi Saver fund fees would have been taxed as well, and so the fund managers most likely would have passed rather than eating those fees uh, like any good profit seeking entity. They would go, oh, actually, we're going to make the people that we're we're serving pay this, and we'll just pass the costs on to them which means uh, people's retirement uh, savings get kind of eroded. Uh, people got very pissed off, as you might imagine. And 
the government very swiftly put its tail between its legs and said, uh, actually, we're not going to do this. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. And this is where we are. It's been very embarrassing for the government. The opposition has made hay out of it. Uh, I guess let's to start with, Philip, I mean, what, what do you think about the whole episode? Uh, I think a lot of people are talking about this. It's going to be this big, it's, it's this big mistake for Labour. They really stepped in it. Is this going to be as politically consequential for the government um, as as people are making out to be? Or is this all just kind of a, a, a bit of a big deal about nothing? Uh, I think it's a uh, a symptom of the fact that the government's lost its golden touch when it comes to communication. I think that's the main thing, really, that it, it showcases. Um, as you said, it was done sort of quietly. There wasn't a big, uh, a big push or a big kind of centralized strategy or explanation of how this, um, how this change would work that could have been communicated really clearly. Um, it, it, at times, a few ministers did a reasonably good job. I thought Megan Woods and David Parker had some kind of clarity when they were explaining it, but that's stuff that should have been happening weeks ago. That shouldn't be happening after you've announced like David Parker has completely lost his um his passion for government it seems like he kind of hates the job now <laughs> it looks like he's really hating the politics part of his politics job um and it's sort of getting frustrated with voters in the media not just doing what's obviously the correct thing in classic kind of technocrat fashion so he was kind of explaining it reasonably convincingly but not in a way that would bring people on on board right so they they didn't do the kind of um unified policy selling stuff that you have to do with something that you know that national will label a tax as they you know don't go oh new tax they love saying that um luxon was on the news saying it's a retirement tax um or savings tax you know there's lots of sneaky ways they can they can label it and because it looks like a tax on a tax which they also love to say right um there are all these little kind of gifts that it could have given to the national party so probably politically, given that they were that kind of backed themselves into this corner, they probably had to pull it before it became just bigger and bigger. But it's just, yeah, I think it's a symptom. It shows how far they've fallen in terms of their ability to actually lead any kind of program. Like think of all the the big picture kind of stuff that they've done. There's been kind of death by a thousand cuts on all these different programs. They're just they're just not good at selling this big stuff anymore. Yeah, I mean, it also kind of struck me as. Uh potentially uh, i want to say potentially because because th there's a lot of reasons behind why this uh idea was 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 pursued but uh potentially it's it, it's a result of the way that they've hemmed themselves in on tax you know they, they've said no new taxes they've repeatedly ruled out doing anything about say instituting some sort of wealth tax you know taxing really really high earners uh, uh, uh at a higher rate uh, going after trusts, all these things, these long simmering tax fairness issues in New Zealand have just been uh, basically uh, abandoned by the government, but then they still need revenue. Uh, they still need to keep the, the government going and they're, they're terrified of getting, you know, of, of, of debt going into in a direction that, that may be uh, bad optics for them. So then, you know, they have to find these kind of like little bits and pieces here and there that they can kind of eke out as much revenue as they can without while still being able to say, Hey, we we're not taxing anyone. No one's being taxed. Even the people who have millions upon billions of dollars or billions, they're not getting uh, any higher taxes either. Don't worry. Every, everyone's on an equal playing field. Um, I mean, like I said, 
there's obviously more to this than 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 just that it does seem like part of the motivation was just uh rationalizing kind of a loophole that they clearly thought was not going to be that big of a deal although i have to say i have to ask how could they not i mean if you're going after the kiwi saver you know how why would you think that that would just kind of pass by without any sort of um uh, uh hubbub or, or outrage but yeah 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 well did you see the headline um i think it was thomas Cochrane, but it was one of the kind of mainstream political journalists had a headline about like uh 105 billion dollar tax by uh 2070 i think it was so they've done this like insanely long projected <laughs> and then divided it by all these years that's like i mean you can't you can't do that with new policies right you can't go this tax will cost or this tax will bring in uh 105 billion dollars by 50 like you can't just push the the line out further and further into the by future. the year 3050 this tax would have eroded on <laughs> the savings by 500 trillion dollars it's inside the entire gdp of the country yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's meaningless right there's no there's no point to these comparisons anymore by the heat death of the universe if you actually <laughs> look at it uh <laughs> new zealanders would have no more savings at all uh it's, i don't know why they're doing this they're so determined to tax tax senders here to, to take your tax your cat away yeah no i think i think it's it, it didn't have to be a big deal but the way they did it it really ensured that it wasn't going to succeed so it was either going to become an al albatross around their neck or um they were going to have to scrap it mm. but yeah it's just frustrating it shows how frustratingly anti-ideological and inefficient this this government is somehow both at once right mm. i mean you know personally on the merits of the of the idea I mean, I think the less GST there is, the better. Um, it's, a, it's a regressive tax, of course. You know, I, I, people, I, I think people, working people should be taxed as little as possible. People who make the most amount of money and people who, who sit on the most amount of wealth, you know, should, should, should pay more. Um, and, and, you know, I am by no means a tax expert or, or an expert on this at all. But my question is, could you not do what labor wanted to do you know take out this loophole make make a, a, a even across the board for both small managers and, and big fund managers but then just say this won't apply to to, to KiwiSaver. um i mean is is there am i missing something is there some sort of uh a, a roadblock here some sort of like legal reason that, that that couldn't have happened um i mean it seems like we 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 make exceptions like this all the time and and more so i mean uh, that that to me is my un unanswered question about this whole thing that no one seems to be talking about. Like, why why can't you just make an exception for Kiwi Um But yeah, good question. I don't have a, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> We'd need a person who knows what they're talking about with Kiwi Server um, to cover that actual policy question. Yeah, it's too bad those people don't exist or can't be contacted by uh, journalists or <laughs> anyone. I, I will say one more thing, which is that. Okay, whatever your feelings about the merits of this particular idea, uh, which is not happening anymore, just to, I want to make that very clear. But whatever your feelings about the the merits, um, it's a little ridiculous the 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 sheer amount of outrage about this particular thing. When like, as Julianne Genta point out, uh, Green MP Julianne Genta, uh, National has repeatedly work to undermine kiwi saver and to to basically 
uh, attack uh, Kiwi's retirement savings through it. Um, you know, they they lowered the uh, uh, employer contribution. They halved the the government contribution. They put a tax on the employer contribution, so further eroding the amount of money uh, that that would actually be contributed by 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 your your boss. Uh, all of this, I mean, that has way more of an effect, I would say, uh, in the in the long term on on eroding people's savings than uh, than this particular announcement. Um, and I mean, at the time, obviously, you know, opposition parties were not happy about that. But I don't recall the 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 level of kind of uh, media and 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 public. Uh, and pundit outrage about it that that was greeting this uh and it kind of i mean i think it probably speaks to double standard you know john key was the one who instituted that everyone loved john key especially the press uh and and he did it and very early on in his uh in, in his uh, tenure so uh, it was at the height of kind of when when he was a golden boy of everyone and you know the, the teflon john thing um, it, it seems to me like it's part of this whole narrative shift where, you know, the press is now after, after being very nice to the Labour government has to find reasons to kind of attack it and, and, and not be very nice to it. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just kind of glaring. It's a, it's a glaring double standard. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, look, if, if this means going forward every single time, the national government, I mean, I know they've ruled it out now. They're saying we're not going to touch it at all. We'll see if that sticks, but I'd love to think that, you know, if, if in the future any party decides to, to you know, uh, tinker with and, and kind of uh, slightly weaken KiwiSaver, that there will be a similarly apoplectic uh, reaction from, from the media. But uh, I don't know. Is it? Or is this just going to be this one thing and then, <laughs> you know, a future Luxon government, you know, uh, uh, introduces its own little little tax that 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 uh take save at people's savings and everyone just kind of lets it go through well i mean under luxon nationals uh policy is still to raise raise the age of eligibility for superannuation from 65 to 67 which is a massive savings cut essentially right if you you're taking out two years of making i forget exactly how much super is 30 ish 30k a year ish yeah it might even be less to be honest it's not very much it's not much, but if you think that's what fifty grand per New Zealander when they hit retirement age, then if if you treated that as cutting into the pockets of people who are attempting to save for their retirement, which it is, that's exactly what it's doing. It's just doing it on the other side of the ledger, right? Um, you could level the same accusation at the National Party and say they want to take, um, you know, fifty grand out of hardworking New Zealanders' pockets when they hit retirement age. Um, they're just doing it through service cuts rather than uh, tax increases, right? Yeah. Well, but you remember service; those service cuts are coming in the service of uh, tax cuts, which of course is the solution to everything. In fact, that people should remember that that was Nationals. National did not like KiwiSaver, which is why they've tried to serially undermine it. Now they've changed it because it's, you know, uh, over a decade on, it's it's achieved a sort of sense or status of political legitimacy it's it's become so much a part of people's lives that that you can't really touch it so they, they've changed it here in this but they, initially they they opposed it and their big thing was you know the what would be better is if we just did tax cuts that would help people save a lot more which is idiotic um but but they, it shows you how little 
of the national kind of uh, uh, ideological rationale has changed, uh, you know, over a decade later. It's still just tax cuts are the solution to everything. Yeah, especially this national. Like, Luxon's national seems very much just the most national national party you can have. Like, more more stereotypically centre-right than even key, uh, more so than Bill English. Like, all the imaginative bits are gone, all the potential for development that Simon Bridges kind of had in the gleam of his eye has been kind of kicked down the road. And it's just back to New Zealand initiative ghouls from the nineties, basically (laughs) (laughs) the least imaginative people in New Zealand politics are running the show. Yeah. Well, you say, uh, you say center right. And yet uh, national had their own flip flopping uh, scandal story, uh, brouhaha, whatever, whatever term you want to use because Luxon initially said that he would well no i'm sorry he, he he refused to rule out he very carefully hedged his words so that he made clear he did not want to uh partner with with destiny church a, a, a band of religious extremists who are kind of trying to jump on the bandwagon of a a kind of rising uh fringe uh right movement in in new zealand said he he basically wouldn't rule out potentially working with them or, or having them as a coalition partner in some far off future. Uh, and then was savaged for it by pretty much everyone, even, even the, the very right wing uh, act party, the, basically New Zealand's equivalent of, of the Republican party. Uh, and then had to walk it back. And I mean, uh, obviously a uh, easy, easy points to, their opposition now you know i imagine labor is already cooking up advertisements election advertisements in their in their heads you know to say oh you know look luxon he's he's against abortion and now he also wants to work with these other religious extremists you know sort of doing his doing some dog whistling around uh luxon's uh uh, uh, uh religious beliefs he really so you know he stepped in it too um but also the 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 media really love this kind of story when politicians say they're going to do something or they don't quite say they're not going to do something and then they have to be more explicit or do a complete you know turnaround and it's it's like christmas day uh for journalists to me it's kind of it's not that those stories don't have merit but it's also kind of like the lowest common denominator of yeah political reporting as well you know yeah, exactly. That that was the main point I wanted to make about this story is that it's such a it's such an non-event, um, and at the same time as such a like an actually significant flip flop from the Labour Party. It's been presented by a few, um, you know, motivated political insiders or like Beltway journalists as this is the the National Party version of that. But it's I mean it's not. It's a completely different optics kind of story. He he had explicitly ruled out. Um, clarifying whether he was going to work with them or not so in the most literal possible sense he did change his answer but it's on such a minor inconsequential um future optics kind of issue at this point right it's it's really not in the same league as the labor party announcing a policy and then within 24 hours you know as the sole party of government with full control over cabinet the entire kind of machinery of government at their disposal at their disposal just turning everything around, like turn the ship around 24 hours. Let's take this off. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> Whereas yeah. this, yeah, we had had a conversation in our uh, last podcast about the uh, destiny kind of situation and the um, grab bag of weird right-wing parties 
which actually I don't think is gonna is gonna happen. It's gonna fall apart even faster than it gets put together. This new attempt at like a Freedoms NZ um, party, which they're trying to do another uh, Jamie Lee Ross uh, public party kind of situation, um, and it's not it's not gonna work. But they they're already um, trying to push this this line. So they they're obviously the ones who who wanted Luxon to leave that open. But then, as you say, even the ACT Party, that's much more right-wing than the National Party, just comfortably ruled them out. So <laughs> what do you do in that situation, right? <laughs> and he, he pretty smartly, you know, followed what his advisors had obviously told him. But the conversation we'd had about it was, um, was this like a strategic ambiguity thing that he was leave it, leaving open to dog whistle to that side of the voters? Or was it just ineptitude? Was it just like a slow response? Because I don't think Luxon has very good political instincts. This is a conversation we had in the last episode. Like he seems really slow on these things where John Key was really quick, for example, like just taking the temperature of the room and responding to that. He's always really flat footed in that situation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, to me, it does seem like it was intentional. I mean, you know, these statements are carefully crafted and, you know, uh, I, I, I just can't imagine that, that, that from his point of view, he wouldn't want to completely close a door or if it came down to it, right. If that was the difference between having power and not having it, he wouldn't want to completely close the door. I, I have no doubt that they would absolutely work. Uh, if the, if this, I mean, if this party ever even managed to get off the ground, I have no doubt that they would work with it. Of course they would, you know, the same way that, that labor does not in its ideal reality want to work with New Zealand first, obviously for a whole host of reasons um, and some reasons uh, that they do want to work with them because they're a very useful punching bag for them. But, uh, uh, but, you know, obviously way easier to not have to deal with Peters, Winston Peters. Um, but, you know, when, it, when push comes to shove, what are you going to do? Uh, you, you're going to, you're going to try and form a government and you're going to take what support you can get. And, um, and, and while, that party may be beyond the pale for the voting constituency of, of, of labor and definitely the greens, if they were a potential coalition partner, I don't think they're quite as much beyond the pale necessarily for maybe some chunk of nationals base, but not all of it. So, you know, um, I could see the logic of him. If he did this, do this intentionally, I could see the logic behind it, but, uh, but yeah, nonetheless, huge uh, unforced error on his part. Yeah, yeah. And then the obvious um, question is, well, what do you do if they're the kingmaker, right? If you need them to form power, um, the and the, if the alternative hypothetically is a grand coalition where National would need to go with Labour to prevent them from uh, being in the, the government benches, would they do that? And I think it's, it's telling that uh, when Luxem was asked that before this question, so this was I think a, a month ago, at least a few weeks ago, he he said, "Well, I can rule out Labour, haha." You know, as a <laughs> which is gag, gag. It's like that's a sure. That's like a flippant thing to say if if that's your job. But it's a serious <laughs> question. Like there have been countries where they've had to do that, right? Yeah. Um. So oh, I, yeah. I think in, just... in Europe, there's so many of these coalitions that that have had to to get the the support of like a, a, a tiny fringe of some you know right wing kooks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, obviously the update to that is that he has ruled them out now. So whoever in his whoever in his office uh, was pushing that, because so, that's the other interesting thing, right? Is 
Luxon's office filled with NZI initiative, um, old national hand, kind of further right seeming parts of the, or at least un unreconstructed parts of the National Party. Um, there'll definitely be some who'd be more sympathetic to those destiny style social views than most of the National Party would. So I do wonder if there's a kind of inner circle, outer circle thing developing in the corridors of the National Party. Yeah, I mean, no, it's a good question. Uh, and one we, we may find out at some point. But the other reason this this is so kind of was so dumb to me that, that, that this even became an issue, they allowed it to become an issue, is that, I mean, is it even possible for these disparate, you know, fringe white right wing, uh, I guess, parties or organizations, groups to actually come together into some sort of unified whole? I mean, the thing that kind of they have in common is how fringe and out there they are but in terms of what they what what would be the unifying policy vision or the unifying kind of you know ideas that would actually bring them together i mean what like opposing covid restrictions well okay most of those are already gone <laughs> so yeah, beyond that, what else? that one, right? yeah right so yeah. It just... no, but anti-everything they don't have a they don't have a solution, so it's not going to come together. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess the other to check myself a little bit. I mean, you know, I that is not necessarily a complete roadblock to uh, to to creating some sort of unified entity. I mean, we we've seen in the U.S. how the Republican Party in the last election basically coalesced around just their policy platform was support Donald Trump. So. It's not it's not out of the question that that somewhere down the line, you know, political uh, and, and social and, and economic shifts uh, uh, create the kind of conditions for something, some sort of unity to be forged between these groups. But that, that to me is such a at this point, such a distant scenario that it, it seems even more inexplicable that you would just not say, like, no, I'm not going to work with these these idiots. That's that's ridiculous. But Hey, I'm not a politician. I'm not the leader of the National Party. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> take my words with a grain of salt. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, let's not let's not reveal the announcement that we uh the, We're the not ruling we anything had. and it's rolling right. anything out right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ruling out becoming really leader of the yeah. National Party. <laughs> Election's a long way away. <laughs> Yeah, just watch the space. Well, two hundred listeners, we have some exciting uh, things on the horizon. Well, so that's that's been the week in uh, politics in New Zealand. Uh, turning our eye to uh, foreign lands at the moment. Um, well, you know, a, a, a pretty big uh, thing happened uh, this week. In fact, only a few days uh, before we record this, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the, the the very last leader of the Soviet Union, died, which seems to be a very uh, symbolic event given what we're watching play out in Europe right now. Uh, namely, you know, Gorbachev was best known as the, the leader who began opening up the Soviet Union to more freedom, or, you know, freedoms of, of speech and, and the like, uh, the freedom to criticize the government, uh, as well as kind of market reforms to the Soviet economic system uh definitely the first one has been very much rolled back uh i mean it's been rolled back under putin certainly and it's especially been rolled back ever since the start of this invasion 
Um, but really, I mean, Putin would be a convenient kind of dartboard to 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 blame all this on because while he did do a lot of this, it wasn't just Putin. I mean, Im- immediately the the pro uh, Western president Boris Yeltsin, who who basically uh, just pushed Gorbachev out. Um, he he started doing a, a lot of authoritarian stuff immediately. Um, you know, he any any kind of centralized power in the presidency. He he uh, uh, in, a, in a standoff with 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 Parliament, he basically shelled. He ordered the military to shell Parliament, and then just basically rewrote the constitution to give himself more power. And that's the constitution that he ended up bequeathing to Vladimir Putin. So this is this is bigger than just Putin, but but nonetheless, Gorbachev's death is kind of symbolic of um i guess uh, the 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 end of a a particular moment in history when there was you know the cold war was over we thought it was over uh we believed that the world was heading into a more stable and more rational um global order um and that russia was going to head into a more um i guess a western style liberal democracy and all of these things have uh, ultimately not come to pass, which is uh, a great tragedy for the world and, and for Russians. And, and, you know, now we're also seeing for Ukrainians, too. Yeah, exactly. It does. It feels like a, a figurehead from a kind of almost mythical past in some ways at this point. Hey? Like if, if you think of the big kind of uh, changes ushered in by that era, you're thinking about the 70s and 80s. I mean, even Chernobyl, right? Mid 1980s. That's a. It feels like a world away from where we are now. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that Gorbachev was the, famously the one who, you know, kept that secret for long enough for hundreds of thousands of people to walk walk through, um, and risked, you know, countless long term damage because of that. Um, so there's obviously some kind of lionization attempts going on in the in the press like i saw a uh, headline at the guardian that was uh like once the once the world had gorbachev and Man- mandela now we have trump johnson and trust um that's a very like guardian view of the world right these um mythical kind of great men figureheads have been um replaced by these i guess quote-unquote populist um nightmares now who aren't who aren't thoughtful statesmen in the way that they would like them to be um, but that obviously whitewashes quite a lot of what actual local people think. I mean, it seems like the the reaction to Gorbachev's death is not a million miles away from the reaction to Yeltsin's death in terms of the comparison between the Western press and Russian kind of local reaction, right? Um, and Yeltsin died, what, late uh, 2007, 2008, something like that? Um and the Western press had a very different view of the Russian press from the Russian press then as well, because, you know, we weren't in Russia in that tragic post-Soviet time with the massive, you know, decrease in living standards, poverty, um, you know, the results of that shock therapy were tragic on like a global scale um, in a more sudden way than had been seen in developed, developed kind of economies like that for quite a long time. So I think there's, there's obviously lingering kind of disaffection that globs onto Gorbachev as well as Yeltsin. It's, I guess it's a debate how much you want to have that as a continuation. I'd say that Gorbachev definitely paved the way for that, mm-hmm. for that direction into Yeltsin, which paved the way into Putinism, as you 
as you say. Um, and Yeltsin obviously handpicked Putin. I think that's a mm-hmm. you can't you can't really draw a hard distinction between those two um, in terms of their authoritarian ideologies from a kind of mm-hmm. geopolitical perspective, at least. Um, but yeah, do you think that? I mean, in the same way as Mandela has become a figurehead that stands for things he didn't stand for, <laughs> do you think Gorbachev's <laughs> going to become a similar kind of hollow signifier punching bag for the West now? Yeah, I mean, I think from what I've seen of the reaction to his death, it, it does seem like that's already uh, happening uh, to something. You know, he's been hailed as as a, a, a reformer, as a, as, a, as a Democrat, as someone who, you know, tried in earnest to change a really brutal and, and undemocratic and tyrannical system and, and, and maybe shift into something else that unfortunately, you know, butted up against a lot of party hardliners who didn't want to have any changes. Um, and that sort of helped to lead to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, although, I mean, the Gorbachev, you know, this is, I'm not a, an expert on, on this period, but I think Gorbachev also made some mistakes. Uh, you know, his, he, he tried to demonetize um, uh, uh, particular notes, uh, ruble notes, um, and uh, basically said 50 and $100 notes, uh, they can't be used anymore. And you have three days to exchange them. <laughs> so c- complete chaos. And it, it led to, you know, exactly the kind of economic uh, disruption that you can imagine. And, and some people do blame him, blame that policy for, for the, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, yeah, he's definitely being valorized uh, in a way. I, I think to sort of compare him or contrast him to Putin to say, oh, look, you know, if only Russian leadership after after Gorbachev had sort of followed in his footsteps. Instead, we got this this guy who came in and just completely tarnished uh, Gorbachev's legacy. Oh, you know, the, the bad Putin. Ah, oh, Putin. But I think one thing that's key and one thing that's being left out of all of these obituaries, because I think, you know, Gorbachev, I think, is a, is a, was a good person and he, he does best in, as, as like a single figure trying to change uh, an entire system, you know? Um, but one thing that is is left out of it is not even to do with, with his actions at the at the the dissolution of the Soviet Union or his attempts at reform, but it's uh, basically everything he said in the decades since, uh, except for all the parts where he's criticized Putin. That stuff gets publicized. You know, you can find uh, interview after interview and article after article pulling out these quotes where Gorbachev says, you know, Putin shouldn't run for another term or. He's he's turned Russian democracy into this kind of uh, hollow thing, and you know, so on and so forth. It, and and those criticisms are completely correct. What people don't report about is Gorbachev saying repeatedly that NATO expansion should never have happened. That he was lied to. He he was assured verbally. He didn't get the assurance in writing, which was his big mistake, and maybe an example of the naivete um, uh, uh, that that kind of maybe doomed him as a political leader, but. He he said many times NATO should not have expanded, um, that that was the wrong thing to do. He has complained bitterly about the the Western and not really Western, but particularly the the U.S. government treatment of Russia in the decades after, where it basically treated uh, Russia or the you know the remnants of the Soviet Union as a defeated power, and that that America was kind of caught up in this what he called triumphalism and, and arrogance that it saw itself as winning the Cold War, and saw itself as kind of imposing a a victor's peace on Russia, 
and that he's repeatedly said that number one, the tensions between the U.S. and Russia are incredibly dangerous. That that nuclear weapons should be abolished, and the fact that they're not, the fact that these tensions have risen again, is is really really scary for the world. And he has repeatedly blamed the United States for uh, its its great role in inflaming these tensions. You know, uh, and and you know, of course, Putin's done stuff as well. Don't don't get me wrong, and and you can find plenty of lists uh, where people explain what exactly he's done, but. What people forget is that when Putin came in in the 2000s, he was a very pro-Western leader. He tried to make outreach to the U.S. And the Bush administration took this very silly uh, 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 strategy of just saying, well, we're going to, that's great that you want to be friends with us. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff now that that you don't want us to do, including expand NATO, including pull out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty that Gorbachev had signed with, with Reagan um, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and so this is what Gorbachev is referring to, that the, the US, there was no sort of reci- uh, reciprocity between some of the Russian concessions and, and, and US actions. And that has led to the inflaming of, of tensions. Um, another thing he's repeatedly said is, despite everything, despite how bad relations between Russia and the US are, they need to, to talk and negotiate and they need to come together and, and find some sort of common ground. He constantly talks about how, I mean, remember when Gorbachev, became leader of the Soviet Union. This was the the, the, the era of the, the evil empire, quote unquote. You know, Ronald Reagan, who was this anti-communist zealot who, uh, and, and war hawk, uh, came in, you know, they did not have a lot of great uh, uh, thinking about Gorbachev. US-Soviet relations were very low. Uh, and, but Gorbachev always stressed, by trying to negotiate over things like arms control and talking to each other, that process by itself actually helped to ease tensions and, and improve relations between the two countries. And, you know, now if you say something like that in, in at least in the West um, you know, I, I think even in New Zealand, if, if you propose something like that, you would be called a whole bunch of names and, and you would say, you know, people would accuse you of a whole bunch of nefarious motives. Um, but you know, this is the guy who actually did it. I mean, he, this is a guy who, who led the Soviet union at a very perilous moment in history and, uh, managed to negotiate with, with a country that at a time when people said it's impossible that the U S and the Soviet union could, could negotiate. It's impossible. The cold war could even end and they did it. And maybe that should be uh, all of these things together should maybe be a lesson to us, uh, uh, in the West, you know, when, when we're thinking about what is a rational policy towards, uh, Russia and towards this war. I mean, you know, rem- remember we in New Zealand or the UK or the U S we're not suffering, uh, uh maybe obliquely the secondary effects, but we're not suffering directly from, from the, the shelling and fighting it's, it's the, the people of Ukraine are. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom, I think, in his words that that uh, unfortunately is, is not going to be uh, remembered or digested because that's been completely excised from uh, from from his legacy. Because if you say that, well, Gorbachev says all these things and also he's the anti-Putin, then it doesn't compute. Well, how is it that, hold on, he's the anti-Putin, but, but he's saying all this stuff that we've been told is like Putin talking points and Putin propaganda. Because that would suggest maybe, hey, maybe there is some fault in Western policy here. 
and and maybe this sign has to change in 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 the way that we do things as well as the way that Russia does things. So that's that's a very very long point for me, but this is just thing, things that I've been I've been thinking about reading some of these obituaries of of Gorbachev. Yeah, that's fantastic. And maybe I mean maybe there are more than two sides, right? That's the uncomfortable realization. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, leading through such a turbulent period, the oil crisis in the eighties took through to the the greatest the greatest crisis and mistake of his career his pizza hut advertisement in the late 90s uh, <laughs> but yeah it's it's funny right because now that he's not there to be saying these inconvenient um positions i mean his his position on crimea right he was um sort of basically in favor of uh russian cultured crimeans joining Russia if that was what they wanted essentially is how he seemed to be presenting it right um and that's not a that's to be making at the United Nations or at these kind of cultured uh, elder statesman kind of events that they have um but now that he's not there to be saying these inconvenient things he's going to be made into this this figure that's a convenient kind of cudgel right for the mm. for the global kind of west and capital to bash Putin with because yeah as you say like Everything that's not the the party line is now Putin propaganda. So right. it doesn't matter what the actual figure thought, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the Crimea thing is interesting because w- whether you agree with him or not, his point was they voted for it. Now, of course, the referendum, lots of problems with the referendum and stuff. So, you know, I, I acknowledge that. I'm not, I'm not saying, again, w- however you, you feel about this, his point was if they vote for wanting to leave Ukraine and join back with Russia, then that should be respected. And he said maybe maybe a similar solution can be found to the republics and the breakaway republics in the Donbass. And he actually said the same thing at one point about Chechnya, which uh, uh, the 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 horrific war against which you know first Yeltsin and then, and then particularly Putin uh, uh, waged after the Soviet Union's fall. He said you know maybe give them a vote and see if they want to have more autonomy and and you know that'll be a solution and that could end this fighting so there's a there is a consistency in in these solutions that he that he had chechnya by the way completely when people talk about the the bad things putin has done it's always crimea and obviously ukraine uh chechnya never gets talked about and i can tell you my suspicion why it's because when he was doing this horrific just flattening of of this uh region uh he was supported by the west through it they you know they tutted and they said well we don't you know this is we're a little concerned about this but at the end of the day they they wanted to play ball with him um to begin with and they sort of mostly let him just do it uh so you know that that war kind of just gets completely memory hold uh in the canon of bad things putin has done uh which is very interesting to me well, it also matched the war on terror rhetoric of the day, right? Much more conveniently than things do these days. Um, yeah, that's that's part of that kind of, I don't want to say detente, but I guess necessary relationship between countries fighting the kind of a global evil. As soon as there's a new convenient global evil, if you can uh, frame it in the right way, it kind of works. Whereas this uncomfortable kind of um, geopolitical internal disagreements between peoples within countries and wanting to reclaim territory that doesn't fit that narrative at all that puts people back in uh puts western people back in a world war ii kind of mentality and no one wants that yeah uh, absolutely um other thing that's been been going on relevant to what we're talking about with gorbachev and, and 
um, Western policy towards Russia and Ukraine and everything. Uh, there was uh, a piece for foreign affairs, which is an establishment foreign policy journal in the United States. Um, recently, someone pointed it out to me, and it's kind of this one passage of it, this one one extract has, has become a bit of a, a mini flashpoint um, because in it, uh, the piece is written by Fiona Hill, co-written by Fiona Hill. She is a longtime establishment foreign policy person. So she was uh, the national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council um, and, uh, during the Bush years. And then she was uh, deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council um, under Trump for two years. So it's a very establishment person. You cannot get more establishment. And if you read the piece, that it's mostly kind of a the usual, I would say, very flat talking points about, you know, the wars because of uh, kind of a Hitler-like expansionism, Putin wants to restore the Soviet Union, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it's making an argument that that I think we have pushed back against uh, on, on on this podcast and that a lot of kind of uh, other thinkers and foreign policy experts have pushed back on. But uh, around midway through the piece, what she uh, reveals, uh, perhaps, you know, without without realizing the kind of um, magnitude of what, what the, the, the significance of this is, she says that in April, so just before uh, the Bucha massacre, when there were these talks happening between Ukraine and Russia and Istanbul being brokered by Turkey, uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia had, she says, settled or appeared to settle on a tentative agreement that would have put a, a stop to the war. Um, and it basically would have uh, necessitated that, that Russia withdraw to its position on uh, the 23rd of February, uh, that Ukraine accept neutrality, so it doesn't join NATO, um, and, and a few other things. Um, now, the key thing about that is, taken in isolation, that's kind of an interesting fact. Oh, the war could have ended, but then it didn't. That's too bad, you know. Uh, but the other key thing is, uh, uh, some months back, a Ukrainian newspaper, Pravda, um, which is not you know, people think the Russian Pravda is a different, it has the same name. It's a different newspaper. It's a pro-Western newspaper. It was set up by a journalist in the, in the I think, the early 2000s. A journalist who was actually killed by the U- U- former Ukrainian president. Um, so, you know, this is not a, a government mouthpiece or whatever, um, uh, or traditionally anyway. Um, but they reported Ukrainian officials told them that in April, as this deal, apparently a tentative agreement to, to, to stop the war had been reached uh, when Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, visited Kiev in, in, in April 9, um, he uh, basically told Zelensky, uh, whatever agreement you've reached with the Russians, we in the West are not going to recognize it. We think Putin has revealed himself to be weaker than, he, uh, than we thought he was. And now is the time to, to, to press him, quote unquote. Now is the time to basically push for victory. Um, and so uh, taken together, those two pieces of information suggest that this war could have been ended in April, uh, as early as April. Uh, and remember, that was before Ukraine lost all this territory that's now trying to reclaim in this counteroffensive, uh, which it's not clear it's going to be able to do. Um, and who helped to scuttle the deal? 
UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The West, one of Ukraine's military benefactors, its guarantors. Uh, that is a huge scandal. Uh, the fact that this war has been now, I mean, we're, we're now five months in later uh, past this this deal being scuttled. Think of the amount of lives that have been lost and the amount of, of land that's been lost. Um, pretty stunning stuff. I don't know. Your reaction? Yeah, it is. It's unbelievable. And again, as you say, amazing that it's something that she revealed as just kind of a passing point, right? That's not, it's not intended to be a scandal the way that she, she drops that bomb. Um, But from, so did you say returning to February 23rd borders, did you say? Yes. Yeah. So what would that have covered? I think that would have been the the beginning of the invasion, if I'm not if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, I think the Russian invasion began on on February twenty third, so it would have been, you know, them effectively withdrawing. So not the Donbass or uh, any of those early lands. That's what I was wondering. Um, yeah, because February twenty third is when Putin announced the operation, so. Uh, I oh, would wow. suspect, I mean, like, you know, there was no details, I guess, but I'd suspect it just means that it would have been status quo pre invasion as in Russia's still maybe got troops, yeah. troops in, in the Donbass, they're supporting the, the, the separatists, but, uh, at the same time, Ukraine agrees not to join NATO, which remember has nothing to do with this war at all. And it's absolutely relevant to the motivations behind the invasion. And it's, it's uh, weird they even put it on the table for a, an agreement. Then yeah, yeah, it's was... weird that it's been like the just constantly the the one feature of every single negotiating bid from basically before the war to like even now. Um, but I remember it has nothing to do with what's going on uh, in in that part of the world at all. Uh, on, purely just one madman trying to conquer the entirety of Europe. Uh, but that's depressing right that that was so long ago now if you think of the the progress of the war since then that's heartbreaking yeah uh and i mean at this point we don't even know how much longer this is going to go on for i mean europe is because of the sanctions and the counter reprisals from russia cutting off uh its oil and gas exports to europe um europe is now going into it's going to be autumn over there and then pretty pretty soon it's going to be winter and i mean it gets pretty bloody cold over there a lot lot colder than it does in new zealand uh they're not going to have energy for heating they're not going to have i mean they're not going to have energy for for a whole bunch of stuff i mean you you electricity isn't just to keep the lights on it's you know things like water treatment uh you know uh, i mean uh things like keeping the economy going. I mean, uh, Germany has had to, uh, I think a bunch of factories have already closed or on the brink of closing. You know, Germany is the the beating economic heart of Europe. And it's looking at, because of this war just going on and on and on, um, it's looking like it, it, its economy may, you know, go into a deep recession as, as, as well as the rest of the, the EU. And it's going to hit the UK as well. I mean, the, the, the UK is going to be affected by this as well. So, I mean, really just mind-bogglingly irrational behavior from from um western leaders particularly uh, uh you know in this case johnson um and i i have to say i don't know 
but I find it very difficult to believe that this was done just on his own initiative. Uh, you know, the, the, the UK has long been a, a junior partner to, uh, to Washington. I mean, we don't have evidence for that. So I don't want to, I don't want to say it's definitely what happened, but I'll be, I will be surprised if we found out later on that this wasn't in some way sanctioned by, you know, the Biden administration. Yeah. Watch the space, I guess. Eh? It, uh, yeah. It seems like something that would be unlikely, although it's Boris Johnson, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that's the, <laughs> that is the other thing. Right? The well, theory. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, we, we've had reports for a very long time, a drumbeat of reports, you know, in mainstream papers saying that basically the US and the UK were part of this. In NATO, there, there's kind of two blocks. There's the block led by France and Germany, which is more inclined to negotiate uh, or to push for negotiations with Putin and, and bring the water close. And the US and the UK being the head of this other block where uh, it's mostly populated by former Eastern Bloc um, countries, so countries that used to be under the thumb of the Soviet Union, um, uh, who uh, don't want to negotiate, not because they think it's not going to work, but because they they want to inflict some sort of defeat on Russia so that they can weaken it. Um, and, uh, you know, they're worried that, like, uh, in, their, in their eyes, a bad peace could... Uh, jeopardize them so it's you know nothing to do with ukraine at all it's nothing to do with the welfare of ukraine it's completely to do with with their own kind of strategic objectives so i mean if all that reporting is correct then that suggests you know it suggests to me that if the us and the uk are kind of working in tandem with this entire time to kind of push things in a in a in a direction away from negotiations and more towards military victory for ukraine however fantastical that that might be um, that, that makes me think that maybe it's not that far-fetched to think this was, you know, uh, uh, in some way approved of across the Atlantic, but we'll, as you say, we'll find out, we'll find out anyway, that's depressing, uh, less depressing, maybe, uh, in Chile, they are going to vote on this new constitution, getting rid of their old, uh, dictator era constitution written by one of the one of the great monsters of, of the 20th century, Augusto Pinochet, um, and uh, put in place one that was written by, um, well, uh, in the wake of this this massive kind of left-wing victory in Chile that was kind of considered unimaginable, would have been unimaginable in, in decades past. I mean, you've been following this, this issue a lot more closely, I think, than, than I have. I mean, what what's your sense of, first of all, what what is in the Constitution the draft constitution and then what is the chance that they're that that's actually going to get ratified that the public is going to vote for it i think i think first it's worth just quickly going through why this process happened um so in so as we as we're recording it's the fourth uh fourth of september um and on the fourth of september but in chile so tomorrow as we're speaking but as you're as you're listening to this podcast probably right now um they'll be having a uh, plebiscite, a referendum. So everybody gets to vote on whether to accept or reject this new constitution that's being presented. Uh, the old one was written in 1980 under Pinochet, as you say. Um, the new one is widely being called kind of progressive or creative or left-wing. There's a lot of different words you could use to describe it. Um, September the 4th, obviously in Chile's kind of collective memory is also when Salvador Allende won. Um, in 1973 so there's some kind of poetic uh full circle happening here i think in some of the older chileans minds 
Um, so since 2020, in, in 2019, there were those huge Chilean uh, protests, massive public support for um, all sorts of issues from environmental issues, feminism, um, peace, justice, reconciliation stuff, post uh, Pinochet, there are still some really deep scars in that country. Um, and in 2020, there's been work that was at the time kind of a capitulation of the Chilean government to put together a, a, a working group or a consult, constitutional consul, consultation group uh, to work through this process, uh, consulting vast, vast, vast numbers of people in Chile and all these different sectors, interest groups, um, which the process seemed reasonably good. But in a parallel to what we see in New Zealand quite a lot, it was not communicated very well. So what was initially incredibly popular, it polled about 80% of Chileans wanted there to be a new constitution um, initially. But over time, that has been steadily worn down as the attacks on the constitutional process have started to take hold. So a lot of the issues that people have with this new draft constitution aren't actually with what's in the document, they're with feeling excluded from the process or feeling like they've been there have been things hidden from them or that the internal kind of workings haven't been as transparent as they should have been. Uh, a lot of that seems to have been driven by fake news, misinformation, um, just a failure of various levels of the Chilean um, public service to communicate what's happening in a kind of clear enough way, um, which is a real shame. But the, yeah, the new left president won 56% of the vote and that should have kind of given a shot in the arm because that's the that's the largest margin in Chilean uh, history, the short history of Chilean democracy. Um, and an exciting new left-wing young uh, former student activist, revolutionary, um, that seems to kind of usher in this new progressive um, wave of, of action in Chile. But it's sort of meant that the opposite's happened because their supporters have mostly been people who would have already supported this constitution and the people on the sort of more uh, more kind of fractured, I suppose, right in Chile all have, for different reasons, reasons for opposing this constitution. So it's unfortunately probably unified uh, opposition to this constitutional process more than invigorated it. So what's in the actual constitution? Um, similarly to Bolivia, it defines Chile as plurinational. So it sort of opens the doorway to a more... Um, complex integrated understanding of statehood especially when it comes to like indigenous people's sovereignty so being able to have different sort of types of treatment of different parts of the country to respect the fact that there are different indigenous peoples residing there um, so yeah plurinational kind of understanding of statehood as opposed to a unified um, top-down kind of authoritarian state um, so there's similar fear-mongering around that to what we're seeing in co-governance in New Zealand right there's this misunderstanding that that means that um, minorities, indigenous minorities will have a lot more democratic say than they do now, when really it's a, it's a type of, it's a, a qualitative rather than quantitative change in, in democratic rights, right? So in New Zealand, we have, for example, the Maori seats. That doesn't mean that Maori people get two votes. It means their vote goes to a different place, right? And they're just represented using a different sort of strand within the same state. Um, this constitution establishes rights to abortion, healthcare, public water, housing, public education, pension funds. So in terms of sort of 
economic, civil and social rights. It's really kind of top of international, internationally understood as what's human rights right now. The public water in, in particular is seen as quite significant, given that um, Chile has this really nasty, um, you know, Chicago boys, Pinochet era history of being the, I guess, the thin end of the wedge on privatization. And there is some awful history around there of, you know, national resources being privatized and then just extracted for profit by oligarchs, essentially, at the time. Um, and nature in Chile's ecology uh, protected really well. So that's similarly a kind of common good understanding. Um, solidarity, participation and freedom from discrimination are sort of the, the pillars, I guess, that those things stand on. Um, but it's 178 pages long. So no one's read this thing, right? And so what we're seeing is a lot of uh, misinformation, people, you know, myths about private property being uh, disestablished. You won't be able to own your own home. Uh, white people will be second-class citizens. All these kind of standard right-wing kind of fears are being thrown around. And unfortunately, that's been taking hold, especially in the last six months, it looks like it's polling worse and worse. So it's it looks like it's kind of on a coin flip. There's been a bit of a an inflection recently, I saw in polls, but it could ease, it could go either way. It could really go either way. And the no campaign um, has received about 98% of donations. Nobody's paying to campaign for yes. And the, the state hasn't had a unified voice supporting it. And there are a lot of big moneyed interests, um, like Patricio Crespo um, owns tens of thousands of liters worth of irrigation rights, right? So a new constitution that chops away at your ability to privatize water for personal gain would be disastrous for people like them. So there are really motivated, rich people in the country against this, happy to throw money at a no campaign, but no one's no one's paying for a yes campaign. So there are lots of big uh, protests out right now in support of it, but it's definitely a, a class thing. There's a lot of mm. poor people, feminists, uh, environmentalists, indigenous activists, labor unions, uh, by and large, massively for it. And then the people against it, more reactionary. Hmm. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if, if it doesn't pass, you know, uh, what could have been done differently in terms of trying to whip up public support for it and, and to sort of, you know, do well to counteract that campaign. I, you know, I, I've seen people sort of, talking about misinformation and stuff. And of course there's misinformation about it. I'm not surprised at that at all. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's a, there's always misinformation about every possible political question, especially one this um, major and, 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 and with such a public profile. Uh, you should expect that there's going to be misinformation. You should expect that there's going to be a massive um, campaign from, from people who, are, uh, who hold the wealth and power uh, in the country and who oppose it. I mean, that, that should just, you have to go into that knowing that this is something that you're going to have to deal with. And I guess my question would be, you know, what did they do? Or what didn't they do, perhaps, um, to, to, to combat this? Um, uh, I mean, I know, I know how much uh, you know about that, but that's, that's a, a big question for me. Well, I think um, the initial attempts to have engagement were sort of too technocratic and not seen as uh, grassroots enough in, under the previous government. Mm -hmm. um that was really they were having this conversation out of compulsion like there were too many people who said they needed this to happen to not do anything 
But unfortunately, their heart really wasn't in it. It wasn't a government that actually wanted to have engagement by all the sectors of society they needed. So by the time this new government's come in, they're dealing with other huge issues. Uh, inflation and crime are huge and rising problems in Chile um, and seen as kind of blights on this new government that were passed on by the previous one. Um, so they just unfortunately haven't put the, the effort into the public communications in this that they really had to. Some of it I just don't understand, though. As you say, like you need to be ready for these entrenched actors to fight you on this stuff because it's really consequential and will hopefully have kind of decades of positive repercussions if it if it passes. Um, but yeah, just in terms of even things like doing um, public kind of information campaigns, PSAs on TV or whatever, they've kept the the yes cam campaign of that really kind of strictly by the book. It's a overly self-limiting kind of understanding of how they can do that because that i think they're trying to separate the government from the the yes campaign which has been a problem because they they want to be seen as those being separate things and the worse it's polled the more they've gone actually the government isn't in charge of this this is its own beast that was constructed under the previous government but that's disempowered the people who've been in that um in that group to take that to the people and have a continue to have the kind of back and forth that they needed. And over time, just procedurally within the different parts of the uh, constitution drafting process, there have been kind of individuals have come out and said, I was against how this bit was drafted or I was against how that bit was drafted. So it's almost kind of a, a victim of its own success in terms of openness because mm. they communicated so much to people about how it was happening that everyone's had a chance to see something go wrong. Yeah. So now there's this, this kind of understanding that, well, it's definitely not perfect. No one's saying it's perfect anymore. Um, but is all is the accumulation of all these little problems that we've seen come up enough for a yes vote or a no vote? Mm. I mean, if it fails, and let's hope it doesn't, but if it does, is there a chance to do a round two, you know, the the the, the try for another go, maybe change some things or I mean, I, I know very little about this process, so I don't even know what that would what what that would potentially look like. But they they could, but the the amount of pressure this government's under, I think, would be more likely for them to kick the can down the road because they've got these more pressing, shorter term kind of issues mm. of that really cement their kind of legitimacy and survivability. If they can't put a lid on the inflation issues and cost of living um, and crime issues that's a much that's like a nail in the coffin for them so if they're seen to be putting this longer term kind of human rights stuff ahead of that that's a really easy cudgel for the right to use against them i think that's the problem is yeah. the opportunity they had is that they could say look we didn't even set up this process but we support it um and they could have really pushed hard yeah. for this the first time if i think if they if they lose this it's going to be really hard to get the the public will for round two especially after you know, 80% of people wanted it. And now people are saying, but not this constitution, right? As soon as you see the details, they, they want something new and um, less radically uh, anti-humanitarian, I suppose, than the 1980 <laughs> constitution. Um, but this is probably at the more progressive end of what most Chileans would want. So it's going to be a, a line call whether it'll get over or not. But I, mm. I really hope it does. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, we'll keep our eye on it. I mean, and, and keep us finger, uh, keep our fingers crossed, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, as, as you say, it's not it's not that it's uh, that the fight is over yet. Um, but I'm sure, regardless of whether it gets ratified or not, 
there's going to be some uh, very important lessons for the rest of us watching from from across the world to to take away from that. So, yeah, let's uh, let's give them our, our thoughts and solidarity. Uh, and that's it. That's all the stuff that happened in the world this week. Nothing else. So so I'm glad that we were able to cover this, Philip. Uh, that we managed to get all the world's events in one. Uh, what 50 40 minute uh episode pretty yeah. remarkable stuff we do it every week it's incredible right yeah uh, people... things that happen we do not get enough credit on this show for the way that we're able to boil down every single thing that happens in the world into into this you know hour-long <laughs> uh a, a weekly podcast but uh that it is a... it didn't happen <laughs> exactly yeah don't if you read anything else about I don't know stuff happening in like Africa or even other South American countries, rest assured that has not been happening. Nothing is happening in any of those parts of the world. Don't don't read about uh, Ethiopia. Don't read about Iraq. Don't read about the Conservative Party election in the UK. Nothing else is happening. Just listen to our podcasts. That's yeah, the news. Those are not real. So forget about them. Uh, but no, in seriousness, that is uh, the end of this episode. There's another. Another episode of One Two Hundred. Uh, we're glad you could join us. Of course, uh, we'd also be very glad if you can do the usual little call to action that we give you guys. You know, share this episode around, uh, send it to people that that you know who may be interested in whether whether it's the Chilean Constitution or the death of Gorbachev or the war in Ukraine or even the the Kiwi Saver stuff. Um, help get the word out. Uh, however, uh, uh, more listeners that we're able to get, the more uh, impact that, that our work here is able to have. Um, but I'll stop boring you with my uh, <laughs> desperate end of episode begging and just say uh, we will see you in a week. So thanks very much. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? Your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism.